Welcome to Talking With Tech. My name is Chris Bouguet, and I'm here back this time with Rachel Madel. How's it going, Rachel? It's going good. Really excited to be here. I'm so sad. I missed last week. I know. You were in jury duty. Tell us all about it. How was that like? Oh, my goodness, Chris. It was like I felt like I was on a silent meditation retreat, but I wasn't able to meditate. I was uh, not in a retreat at all. It was a, a courtroom. Um, and to be honest, it brought a lot of things up for me. It was it was interesting because I feel like we're so busy in our everyday life that like the thought of taking an entire week off for jury duty is like unfathomable, right? I'm like, no, like I have so many things to do. I can't take, you know, an entire week off. But then I did take an entire week off. And actually by the end of the entire week, I actually was really happy that I did it. Um, The beginning of the week, of course, everybody goes in and they're dreading being picked, but I got picked and I was like, you know what? I can either like resist this and be upset about the fact that I have to go in every day and where I could, you know, really be present. So when you're in the courtroom and you're on a jury, you're not able to obviously access your cell phone and all these things. And you'd really have to be present and be an active listener. So all week I spent listening to the attorneys and the expert witnesses. And it was a really, really interesting process. Now, of course, the next week and just feeling like my email inbox is overflowing and I have a lot of things going on. But all in all, it was a pretty good experience. And I was totally against it in the beginning of the week. And towards the end, I was like, I kind of like this. I go, I go to the courtroom every day. And I felt like it was, um, it was a really interesting process because I was part of our judicial system and, um, to see the inner workings of that was really interesting. Yeah. You know, I've always thought that there are two types of people, people that really like jury duty. And there's the the rest of us that are like, Oh man, jury duty. But uh, it's always been fascinating. The, the idea that, um, that the people who do enjoy jury duty already have what the, the, the attitude that you walked out of the jury duty with, which is the idea that, yeah, there's this whole process that is really fascinating and that, and that works pretty well in most cases. Um, and, uh, and it's just a great learning experience, but like you said, there's the whole flip side. And this is, I think why people do kind of have a, a negative spin on jury duty is that missing work for an entire week. You know, there's clients you had to cancel, I'm sure, uh, schedules and appointments that you had to to rearrange, you know, we missed the podcast. Uh, and it just gets like an interruption to the daily workflow, you know? Yeah. And I think it's just important to, to think about that, right? Like, it's like, uh, what are we doing that's so important that we can't take a week? Right. Um, and I mean this as far as jury duty, which I didn't, I had no choice over. Right. Um, but also just, you know, a lot of people, they justify not taking vacations because of work and all these things because of work. And it's just like, okay, let's take a step back. Our work will be there when we get back. It's not going anywhere. So it's really important to take time for yourself, particularly when it comes to taking vacations and having uh, time off. But um, just in general, I think it's, we, we, we're such a fast paced society, right? We're like always doing so much. And, you know, we have these schedules that are so crazy that, you know, it's, we're always using that excuse, right? When we respond to an email or a text message, like, oh, sorry, I'm just so crazy, busy. It's busy because we make it busy, right? We have to figure out where we draw the line and um, we take time to spend with our family and our friends and responding to those emails and, and doing those things that oftentimes just push away because we're like, oh, well, we're too busy. We'll get to that later. 
I know I work hard to stay in the moment, and I feel it sometimes, the pull to check email or check a text or check social media or something like that uh, when I'm in a, a particular moment, and I know I need to stay in that moment. And But my, I feel that pull. My brain wants to go, okay, wait, check your email right now. I mean, in fact, I was just with a teacher, and uh, the, the, I was a, with an occupational therapist, and I were looking at a student together, and the student was talking about something that wasn't really related to anything I needed to know or discuss, and my mind was drifting, and I was thinking, okay, this is really more for the occupational therapist. Maybe I can switch over here and, and just switch tabs and check my email real quick and, and just see what's going on, see what I'm missing, and I'm starting to head over there. My mind is there as my fingers are moving. I was like, no, wait, stop, Chris. The student might be saying something that really is important. What do you mean it's not important? She, this is this, she's trying to say something. Listen, stop. You know, and, you, and I wonder if I'm feeling that pull. How many other people are feeling that same pull at times? And how often maybe I fail? You know, I do flip over and check my email when I when I should have just stayed in the moment. I mean, I think this is also relevant. Um, you know, if we're being if we're being brutally honest during our sessions, right? Like, there's been a lot of times during my session, my phone will buzz, and I'll be in the middle of something, and I'll think, "Oh, who's texting me? Oh, is that an email? Oh, like I need to go check that right now." And it's hard, right? It's and it's 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 an ethical decision, right? Like, I am very clear and set those boundaries for myself. You know, when I'm with a student, I'm with a student. Not to say that I don't ever check a text message. Or I don't ever do these things, right? I mean, that would be unrealistic. But I think it's something that it's a practice, right? And it's just like, and, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, especially when we're introducing technology to students. Um, you know, it's even hard for me to regulate those impulses. Like I hear a buzz, I want to go check it. Um, same thing when when students are using technology. Um, a lot of times, and I would love to hear your feedback on this, Chris, a lot of times when you introduce a device for the first time, um, an AAC device, students are constantly hitting all the buttons. That's when like all of the behaviors are calling me like, they keep stimming on the device. They keep hitting all the buttons. Um, eventually that kind of subsides, um, you know, and I think that that's important because kids have to explore and they have to, it's like this brand new shiny thing, right? That they need to, to figure out. Um, oftentimes, you know, we put it in front of a kid and they hit all the buttons all the time and it feels like it's random. Um, you know, I would argue that it's not random. Um, they're exploring, they're babbling. And um, oftentimes those types of, of things, they decrease over time. Um, I, it's hardly ever that I I have a kid that's like, we'll say, I'm putting in air quotes, stimming on a device and it lasts for years and years, right? It's like, it doesn't. The device becomes more commonplace. It's not as novel and those types of things decrease. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think what happens too frequently is that we jump to intervention as opposed to just let the natural boredom take over. You know, you hear that a lot, I think, just in society, let alone uh, for people with disabilities. Oh, my son would just go downstairs and play Fortnite all day long if I let him. Mm, no, he probably wouldn't. I mean, he would for a while, sure, because he doesn't have that luxury of doing that all the time. But if you gave him all the Fortnite all the time, every minute of the day for day after day, day for months on end, yeah, he'd get bored with Fortnite and he'd go find something else to do. And I think that's that analogy holds true to a student with a communication device, that what happens is you give them that communication device, it's novel, like you said, they start pushing the buttons, and immediately we want to get to abatement and get them to use it in a way that we want them to use it. But And, and so we start saying, oh man, he's stimming on that device and he just keeps using the same buttons over and over again. And what you're really doing is, chances are you're reacting to it. You're trying to take it away, and so now you give it back to him, and then, oh my gosh, there's that thing 
thing I want to press again, where if you just let it take its natural course, let him press the buttons for as many times as he wants to, he would eventually kind of get bored of it and start using it the way it's meant to be used, you know? The old, you know, grandmother trick. Yeah, let him eat all the candy he wants. Then he won't eat candy. He'll get sick on it and want to eat it. Same, same idea. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's, it's just funny how your experience shapes the way that you practice. And, you know, I've seen so many of these kids that I work with and everyone's up in arms about the stimming. Like, oh no, what do we do? There's so much stimming. I'm like, listen, let's just like calm down <laughs> and realize too that stimming serves a purpose. That's the other thing is like children with autism, they stim for a purpose. It's either to self-regulate. Um, you know, sometimes I really, really think that stimming on a device um, helps kids learn the device. I can't tell you how many times, you know, it's felt so random for so many months. Um, and then I'm like, oh my gosh, look, they know where that button is. They know where this button is. Well, it's because they've hit all these buttons so many times and they've had that auditory feedback. Um, so I just think it's really important reminder when we're working, especially with kids with autism, but with all children. Well, exactly. That that part right there, all children, some and really all people. I mean, we all have our little sensory things that we do. I know for me, you know, if you were to see me present or if we were to sit in a conversation together, I would be constantly putting my fingers behind my ears. Like I'm pushing, like if I had long hair and I'd be pushing my hair behind my ears, but I don't have long hair, I barely have any hair, but I still do that, right? That's my little sensory tick that I have, you know? And no one tries to stop me from, my, my wife doesn't come over and slap my hand down every time I put my hand behind my ears. It's just, it's fine for me to do. Uh, and, and sometimes I feel like that is what happens with adults and children just in general, is that adults seem to feel like they need to control the situation and have kids do what they want them to do, as opposed to just let them be humans. So I got to do this cool thing this week, Rachel, where the superintendent of the school invited me and a bunch of assistant superintendents and uh, a couple other supervisors to go to different schools. We went to an elementary school, a middle school, and a high school, and we walked around the school touring them together through the lens of the flexible seating. What could we do to look, to make the seating more flexible for students? What could we do to make the environment more friendly and uh, more conducive to what we know about learning, which is looking not just the seating, but the, the lighting, the how could we build more motion into the classrooms. And it was this uh, awesome experience where they contracted with um, Pam Moran, who is a former uh, superintendent for Albemarle Schools, which is a county here in Virginia, and Ira Sokol, who is kind of famous on Twitter for universal design and working in this flexible design space. And so I got to meet Ira Sokol, and I've actually met Pam Moran before. Ira Sokol and I have had many conversations on, on Twitter. Um, but I got to walk around the school district, or walk around these schools looking at the design of classrooms and the materials that we put in these, these classrooms for seating and lighting and, and all, these th all these things. And it was this uh, really awesome experience because so often Ira would bring up situations and he'd say, you know, why do we hold kids to this expectation when we as adults don't do the exact same thing? You know, he'll say, you know, I know school districts that uh, have big debates about wearing hats in schools. Can you wear a hat in high school? Is that like rude? Or And all the adults, when they're having this discussion, they're in a room where half the adults are wearing hats. You know, it's like, why are we even having a discussion? You wear hats, let the kids wear the hats, you know? So often we hold kids to a different standard than when we have adults, you know? We wouldn't expect that you, that you and I would sit in the same chair every day. We're constantly 
constantly up and moving. We can, we have the freedom to get up and move and walk around whenever we want, you know? Why wouldn't we ask kids to do the same? We like to go outside and have natural light. Why wouldn't we expect kids to have the same and design the, the environment the same way? And I, relating it back to AAC, that's exactly how I think about with um, technology in general is that let's hold the students to the same expectations we'd hold adults, you know, not higher or lower. Absolutely. And I think that the key word here is flexibility. I think that it's, we're so rigid, right? It's easy. It's easy to make rules and then try to make everybody follow the rules. Um, It's hard to say like, you know, we're going to be flexible in this moment um, because that's a loss of control, right? If I'm a teacher and I'm flexible, it means that at some level I lose some control. Um, and I think that that's scary for people. And I think that's scary for, you know, teachers and clinicians and in all types of situations. But what I do know is that not every child is the same, not every child or adult learns the same way. And so in order to accommodate that in a group setting, what is the common denominator that needs to be there? It's flexibility, open to other ways of doing things, open to changing the environment in a way that's conducive for, for most learners, right? It's not going to be for everyone, but it can be for most. And I think that it's just really cool to hear about your experience. I mean, you're doing really amazing things in this, in this new job, Chris, and making me super jealous, all these, all these really awesome experiences, but they're so important. It's so important. You know, we, we go into these, these situations and we see classrooms and I always question, why is it set up this way, right? Like we know how important environment is. This is kind of unrelated, but somewhat related. Um, I have a a good friend. She is a um, consultant for um, Marie Kondo. She's a professional organizer and her name is Caitlin Roberts. But what she talks about and she does presentations on, you know, how does your environment affect your productivity? And it's huge. The the environment that we are sitting in absolutely affects our ability to concentrate, to focus, um, to be productive. And so it's like, you know, going into these classes rooms, especially when you're working with children with special needs, even when you're just working with any child or any adult, um, you know, we know that there's certain ways to set up an environment that are more conducive to learning. And so I think it's really cool what you're doing, Chris, and, um, you know, in a school district that is progressive in this area, because I know a lot of school districts, they're like, this is the way we've always done it. We don't want to, you know, spend any type of budgetary money on this. Um, they don't see the value in it. And I think it's, it's a huge mistake. Yeah, you know, one of the things we found is that a lot of the teachers that have already been uh, embracing the idea of flexible seating are doing that on a DIY sort of initiative, you know. They they go out and they find the chairs themselves, they make the things themselves, they're, they're scrapping the, the, the budget together with PTO funds and stuff. And there's a certain uh, level of, like Iris Sokol mentioned this when we were talking to him, is that there's a certain sort of beauty in that, where you can't over-prescribe it or plan it. It has to come organically from the teacher and from the students, you know. But the other big piece there uh, when you mentioned the flexibility is that for school districts that want to pursue this or teachers that want to pursue this, a shortcut for them is to look to autism programs and look to preschool programs and look to the occupational therapist. Uh, some of the classrooms, the kindergarten, first grade classrooms, they had lowered the chairs and they, they had lowered the tables, taken taken them off so the tables were almost virtually on the floor. And their cushions were the vestibular cushions, which are these like blow up pillow sort of things that occupational therapists have been putting on kids' chairs for 20 years. You know, it's one of the first pieces of technology I ever saw an occupational therapist use. I was like, what's, what's this 
pillow thing you got the kids sitting on. It's like, oh, it helps them wobble back and forth. It's called a vestibular disc. Well, now that's just something that is just flexible seating that, that is in every other kid's classroom. And it's like, this would be a great way to look towards designing a flexible classroom with flexible seating is, is to go to the occupational therapist, go to the autism classrooms. Same thing with the autism classrooms, right? How often have, there have we had uh, tents or little cubby holes? And that's one of the things that uh, Pam Moran says is she says, look for the different caves. Kids love to climb into caves, you know, and read and have little lights. And, 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 and it's like, yes, exactly. And what classrooms have had that? The autism classrooms, you know, and the preschool classrooms have had beanbag chairs and things like that for years. So just go down to those programs and look at the seating that they have and say, hmm, how can we bring this seating in for everybody? Exactly. Universal design. It's so important. It's not just the kids that we work with who have special needs. It's all kids. All kids want like, you know, flexible seating and cool cushions and beanbags and caves. And it sounds really awesome. I wish my classroom when I was growing up had a cave. I know, me too. Definitely did not. It was like a sterile environment with like really rigid desks. <laughs> that, well, I think that's what we grew up in. And in fact, we saw going from elementary to middle to high school, this progression of flexibility to inflexibility. So at the high school, we saw definitely more rows, definitely more tables that are, and when kids sitting in rows, at, in tables that are lined up in rows, um, there was a little bit more choice in the technology they got to use. Kids were able to bring out their own uh, laptops or bring out their own uh, types of uh, mobile devices where the, the younger students were all using the same sort of device in most cases, but they were all at the high school level. It was very traditional, probably just like this, the classrooms you and I grew up in. Oh man, I think back on that and it's like, now that I know so much about education, I think about my own education and I feel like there's so many things that I wish were done differently. I mean, I turned out okay, but it's just, uh, we know better now, right? We can use multidisciplinary teams um, to give input, to know, you know, how every type of a child's system can be regulated and, you know, can be the most efficient and most productive. Oh, Rachel, I was going to say, you touched, you touched on something there, a little phrase that I hear a lot of teachers say, which is, well, I turned out okay. Like, the system worked for me, you know, so why wouldn't that work for everybody? And that's the whole case is that you and I and many of the people listening to this podcast don't work with people that the system has worked for, you know? And so that's why we're trying to design it better. You know, it doesn't work out for everybody. You just happen to be one of the lucky ones. And I would say that it worked despite the system. We were able to overcome it. You know what I mean? Not because of the system. Exactly. We know that we can do things better. So why not, why not try to do things better? Yeah. So I'm really excited for our interview today. Um, before we, we talk about the interview, I would love to read a review. If you guys haven't left us a review, please, please, please go to iTunes. We love reading them. Honestly, they make me so happy. This one comes from Brooke. She says, this podcast is incredible. It makes me look forward to my drives between my three middle and high schools. I had very little experience working with students with complex communication needs before this year, and now I have several on my caseload. I felt completely lost and ill-equipped until I found this podcast. Now I feel so passionate about providing therapy to these students and educating the whole team about the strategies I learn on this podcast. It seems like whenever I start feeling discouraged or overwhelmed about a case, the next week you put out an episode about that subject and it saves me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's so great. That's so great. Hey, listen, when you're listening now this next week, go back and look at your middle schools and compare the different seatings in those different schools. That's a great little thing to do. And, and what, what environments are we sending the kids back to when they're not in the therapy room? Or what do the environments look like when we go into the general ed classroom and, and work with the kids? So that's so great. What a great review. Thank you. Yes, yes. I just love reading them. So 
please, if, if not only to just make me smile, um, go on and leave us a review on iTunes. Um, Chris, let's talk a little bit about our interview today. Uh, we're, we're interviewing Katya Hill, um, and we're talking about AAC certification. Yeah, so this is sort of controversial, and that's why we wanted to get Katya Hill on the podcast and ask her, invite her to come on, and kind of tell us the the details. You know, so so often you just read the uh, the headline of an article and, and form an opinion. We knew the certification was coming, but we didn't know a lot of the details surrounding it. You know, why it was coming, what was hoping to be accomplished by having a certification, and that's exactly what uh, this particular uh, interview is all about: is to find out those details so that we can talk about them. And we just had a live event uh, where we combined forces with Speech Science, the Speech Science podcast. Um, so actually next week, you'll be hearing that episode live. Um, it was a really interesting discussion. And um, I'm really excited to, to head into our interview now with Katya Hill. Do you have an idea for a product or book? Or are you ready to go beyond in-service presentations? Well, how do you get started? And what if you don't have any business experience at all? Well, I have some great news for you. I'm Mailing Chan, and I'm getting the nitty-gritty stories from parents, teachers, therapists, advocates, and people with disabilities who have created successful businesses, and they're sharing their intimate stories with you. Listen to us on the Exceptional Leaders Podcast and fast-track creating and building and sharing your idea with the world so that you can help more people. Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined by Chris Fugay. Hi, Chris. How are you doing? Great, Rachel. Great, great. So happy to be here. Yeah. And we're also here with Katya Hill. I'm so excited to have her. Uh, Katya, how are you doing? I'm doing great for Friday. I'm yeah, so I know. really glad it's Friday. TGIF, right? So Katya, just explain to the audience who you are and what you do. I'm really excited. Um, today, we're going to be talking a lot about um, the proposed AAC certification. Um, so just let us know a little bit about yourself. Okay. Well, I, I consider myself very blessed because I entered the field of AAC or as a speech language pathologist right when AAC was emerging and I spent almost 20 years working in the trenches in special education building an assistive technology program across 17 school districts and really seeing the field emerge and uh, then it seemed to be time that to go on and get my PhD and so I uh, worked on my dissertation or was in the PhD program at the University of Pittsburgh. I'm now an associate professor at Pitt in the Department of Communication Science Disorders, and I have a secondary appointment in rehab science and technology. I teach the AAC courses. I mentor students across the master's and PhD programs. I provide clinical supervision and I conduct research. But I am very proud of the fact of co-founding the AAC Institute and I Can Talk Clinic, nonprofit organizations almost two decades ago. And our mission is providing resources and clinical services to optimize the communication of individuals with severe disabilities who cannot talk. So other than that, I love hiking. I have children, I have grandchildren, and uh, my first granddaughter 
due April 1st. Ha ha ha. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. I'm so excited and congratulations. I mean, that's Thank beautiful. You. I'm actually yes. from Pennsylvania, Katya. So I heard, I heard Pittsburgh and I was like, oh, Pennsylvania, not Pittsburgh. I'm from outside of Philadelphia, but I, I know Pittsburgh very well and I okay. love Pennsylvania. Now, Katya, we heard something else about you that you didn't put in that introduction. So tell me if this is true or if this is false. But the, the rumor has it is that you are one of the people that came up with the acronym SNUG that the profession uses to kind of talk about the direction that we'd like people to, to be heading in, right? Is that, is that accurate? And if, you, if so, can you tell us a story around that? Uh, yes, that is true. And it was only me. Okay. <laughs> so it can go all the way back just to me. <laughs> okay, okay. Oh my gosh, I love it. And I will tell the story about that um, because I think it's a very big part of my theoretical foundation or theory-based approach to providing AAC intervention or how I look at AAC technology. The term originated when I was working on my dissertation and my dissertation work was on language activity monitoring or LAM. Uh, so that was my term. I, I remember being in my apartment that evening thinking of data logging, and um, I did not want data logging to just be something that was associated with recording activity with a timestamp, because the whole idea of wanting to have a, a log file of individuals' activity using their communication system was that we could measure language or linguistic performance. And in thinking about the fact that what I always did when I was working with children or, or adults with AAC was videotape and generate a language transcript and then measure it. And what do we do? I was talking with uh, a colleague. What do we do when we're segmenting utterances? Well, why is that important? Because we want to know about their spontaneous and their novel utterances that they generate. And then I just kept on saying that and went, oh, it's snug. <laughs> so a little bit of wine in the evening, talking about your dissertation research, generates LAM and snug as acronyms for my approach to AAC. Yeah, well, and, and and I know I use it. I know you've you've written a, a post about it on on the ASHA website, and uh, and I, re I refer to that all the time when I do presentations and and when I'm just doing trainings in general because it gives people a direction of where to head. You know, there, there is sort of a mindset with some people that I feel like we we have to overcome that the mindset is ah oh, these people will never be able to talk, they'll never be able to do it. It's like no, well, what exactly is the training about? What exactly this whole thing? What's it about? Well, we want to get people as close as snug as possible. We want to believe we can get there if we give them enough time and the right tools and the right instruction. Such a great thing, Chris. I'm so glad to hear that. And my dissertation involved collecting language samples from um, adult AAC speakers and then analyzing them with and comparing the video with the log file or the LAM data. And the repeated pattern that they told me about what their goal of AAC was is that they wanted to say anything that they wanted to say. So to have a system that allowed them to say what they wanted to say, when they wanted to say it, and then as fast as they can. And that always is something that's on my mind is, can that person in front of me that I'm providing an intervention, are they able to say what it is that they want to say? Because so many times we're projecting 
Mm-hmm. And that's been particularly striking to me when I'm working with individuals with ALS or at end of life, because a lot of times systems are set up to just be asking for immediate medical needs. Like the nurse wants to know, do you want your medication? Do you want turned in bed? Caregivers, basic needs. And what individuals really want to talk about is to reminisce yeah. and share stories and then kind of leave their legacy, talk about what the le- their legacy is. And that is so important for uh, that time of life. So that's so snug. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And then, you know, of course that ties into literacy, right? That's how we really afford people the opportunity to have snug and making sure that we are recommending systems um, that support that capacity. And that's something that, you know, I definitely talk about when I do trainings, we talk about it a ton on this podcast. So I feel like we have a a celebrity in the house right now. (laughs) We absolutely do. I'm a little starstruck. (laughs) Well, you know, the AAC Institute organizes a summer camp. I can talk summer camp here in Pittsburgh. And so this is almost our 10th year. Uh, This year, it's June 25th through the 28th. But one of the things that in all of the activities that we do when we integrate activities into the Pittsburgh community is that so many of our campers come with systems that are vocabulary of an expectation of what adult communication partners assume they want to say or the educational system needs them to say because of the curriculum, but this really offers them an opportunity to look at vocabulary that is reusable across all of those environments. Mm -hmm. Like one of the funnest things that we do is go to South Hills Village Mall, and we have around a dozen of the storefronts that we plan conversations around. So the campers go in and uh, someone at that store like Target, the Disney store, um, Dick's, uh, you name it, uh, can interact with them. And that gets so exciting because so many of the parents say no one has ever like approached their, their child to carry on a conversation when they're out and about in the community. So... Which is when it's so important, right? You know, we, right. Want, we don't want to just be isolated in a therapy room. We want these skills to transfer. And so what better way than to actually be in the community practicing these skills? Yeah, expanding that circle of partners. That's yeah. what social networks is about. Absolutely. Making friends, having friends, keeping friends, and having all the words to say everything you want to say whenever you want to say it, wherever you are. Right. Rachel, I feel like we could have a whole other podcast just talking about the, the history of AAC. And I mean, we, we could pick your brain forever. But we, we invited you on for this particular episode because of your work with AAC and certification, that topic. Um, and so full disclosure here, I did the, the classic thing that we tell our students not to do uh, that we work with is that I saw AAC certification and I immediately formed an opinion of what I thought that meant. And then I stopped myself and said, no, wait a second, I need to learn more. More. I need to learn the facts around it. I need to know why this is coming. Uh, and, and that's how it was one of the reasons we had conversations, Rachel and I and, and other people said, what if we got the facts and get the facts out to as many people as possible? And our podcast can be one of those ways of getting the facts out. And so you're the person to get the facts from. Yes, I'm in that spotlight. <laughs> and sometimes it's a little warm. Um, 
because people are approaching it from a perspective of not looking at the big umbrella and a piece of the pie related to AAC, but not the big umbrella of speech-language pathology or being a member of the American Speech, Language, and Hearing Association. All right, so let's pull that camera way back and give us that 3,000-foot view. Can you, can you help us understand where it all came from, the idea of AAC certification, and how it fits with the larger scheme of ASHA? Uh, yes. If you look at ASHA in terms of current specialty certification, we've had swallowing and swallowing disorders, fluency, child language disorders. So that formed like the initial core of specialty certificates that were um, motivated and that approval process stems from the clinical certification in audiology and speech language pathology committee. So that's the CFCC and then the Committee on Clinical Specialty Certification or CCSC. So the first thing I encourage people to do and just understanding the big picture of specialty certification is to go to the ASHA website, www.asha.org and do a search on specialty certification and then ASHA's background on specialty certification and what it means to the profession. So we had, if you wanna look at, and I'm gonna use swallowing and swallowing disorders as the example, you can go to the American Board of Swallowing and Swallowing Disorders if I'm interested in getting specialty certification there. They have a website, they walk you through the process of what you have to do, to gain specialty certification in that particular area. And that's probably right now one of the most rigorous specialties that there are, but you look at that foundation there. Now, ASHA in their strategic planning was looking at, well, why aren't more petitioning groups forming to have their area of concentration or their field of endeavor like you look at fluency as a field of endeavor, pursuing specialty certification. Well, the reason is it's very expensive. Um, that committee work that is involved, once you would get approved by CCSC as an oversight body, you have to then incorporate. So that means getting a lawyer, getting accountants, incorporating as a board, creating a website. So we could be very interested in having our own field of endeavor recognized, but not have any financial support behind that. Uh -huh. If you wanted to have a national exam as part of your milestones of achieving, of becoming a, um, a specialist, then that is also an expense, around $25,000 to develop that. Ooh. So what ASHA did was say, well, let's establish some grants that petitioning groups getting together can write for a phase one and will and we'll review it and say, is this really an area that should be a specialty? And then if they're approved, then they can write grants for one, incorporating, two, for a national exam. And that provides that seed money for you to do all of those things to then offer your certificate. Okay. That's essentially what we did. <laughs> what, 
Let, let me roll back just a, a quick question there is let's say with swallowing is, is that was the first one that was that the first one yes um what made people think that we needed a certification or a specialization in that in the first place you know what would that you know that, that's a good question but think of aac was certainly recognized as a field of endeavor i mean if we go oh, back sure in terms of organizations that were founded around assistive technology and AAC. But look at, we had RESNA, the Rehabilitation in Engineers and Assistive Technology Society of North America, recognized AAC before ASHA did, put it in our scope of practice. And then we had ISAAC, the International Society of AAC, and USAC, that was also formed before SIG-12, the AAC specialty interest group in ASHA. SIG-12 wasn't until 1991. So when you start looking at communication disorders, notice how we talk about our programs as being communication and swallowing disorders. Swallowing then was introduced and recognized in our programs as being a le legitimate knowledge and skill area for speech language pathologists. And in that, we had Jerry Logeman that became, was ASHA president that really pushed for knowledge and skills document and recognized it was communication disorders, communication and swallowing disorders as having unique practice competencies. And to push that recognition of the importance of coursework in swallowing <laughs> and billing codes and reimbursement codes in swallowing, specialty certification became one way to promote swallowing disorders as being attached to our profession of speech language pathology. Gotcha. Before it wasn't. Okay. That makes yeah, sense. right. That makes you know, and there was, you know, the d divide between is this the realm of an occupational therapist or a speech language pathologist? Well, now it's clearly in our domain of skill mm -hmm. area. But look at where AAC is. <laughs> I was just going to ask. We, we are still fighting for that same recognition, right? Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I, lo I love that you said um, unique practice competency. I feel like that's what it boils down to. And and I think that, you know, I think using the the swallowing and dysphagia area is a really good example. And it's really interesting actually to hear the the history behind it all, um, which is why I'm so happy to have you here, Katya, to explain yes. all this to us because we had so many questions. <laughs> yes. So if you look at um, the ASHA website now on specialty certification, you will see that list of what um, areas are already considered specialty, but then you'll see the areas that are moving up into phase two and those that have applied and have been awarded phase one. So for example, autism is in phase two. They're slightly ahead of AAC. So CCSC and CFCC then have recognized that autism as communication disorder has um, practice competencies that are, are unique or a, can be recognized as a specialty certificate. And as did when we wrote our petition for phase one, we had to go over what, what was unique about AAC in terms of um, the population that we served issues, 
that it was a specialty certificate was not available somewhere else in order to be recognized. Right behind us is voice. So you can see that with ASHA's funding, that more groups are moving toward establishing themselves as unique practice competencies or skill areas for various reasons. Yeah, I mean, projecting this out, I could almost see that uh, uh, there would be one for articulation, one for voice, one for AAC, one for fluency. It, it's really what the, the whole gamut of speech-language pathology, as I understand it, as, a, as someone who went through school and took all of those as, as classes, you know? Yeah, what do you want to specialize in? Like, I'm, like oral motor speech disorders might be more global approach to talking about that area related to articulation and phonology, uh, et cetera. We don't know. It depends on how well the petition is written and then what CCSC and uh, CFCC feel is legitimate as we move forward as a profession. So there would be a sort of a, a base, if I'm understanding this correctly, of um, people that graduate, they meet their C's, if you will, with ASHA, and that's sort of a baseline. But then you have these splinters, people can't see my fingers, but <laughs> I'm doing these things with my fingers where there's splinters um, so you, that you specialize, and you might have multiple specialties, I would imagine, if you meet the, the, the certifications. Dep- depending on, on what your career goal is. You know, I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of individuals that would, generalists, uh, want to see individuals across a variety of disorders and not necessarily concentrate on uh, a particular area that would be a specialty. Now, certainly in swallowing and swallowing disorders as a specialty, there is not um, a, a master's student or graduate student that's going to get through a master's program that's not going to have a course in swallowing, is not going to have clinical hours (laughs) in swallowing, and is not going to be all excited that they get hired at a hospital, can wear scrubs or a sniff, and are going to be doing bedside swallowing evals and, you know, talking about feeding restrictions, etc. But let's look at AAC. There are still many universities that do not offer a core, a dedicated course in AAC, and if they do offer a dedicated course in AAC, uh, that might not be taught by an individual who has concentrated their career in AAC. They may be the aphasiology person, but then also doing AAC, right? Yeah. Um, and then students may have very limited clinical hours related to AAC in their various placements. Some, I know, at our university may not have any but they're all going to get swallowing. Um, They're all going to get uh, pediatric and they're all going to get adult assessment and intervention, but not necessarily AAC. And then what was the quality of the AAC um, clinical opportunity or experience that they had? And that was definitely my experience in graduate school. I didn't have a single, I don't think I had a single client who I did AAC with. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a course. I was lucky enough to have coursework in it. But I, I really think that those clinical hours, that's where you really learn, right? I, I learned all the foundations, but I couldn't really understand or apply it because, you know, it was kind of in a vacuum. So my question is then, do you think that this certification will encourage more universities to start coursework in AAC because it's more of a recognized 
we'll say specialty area, do you think that's going to lead to more strategic coursework in these graduate programs? Oh, well, that's what I'm hoping. Yes, I, I think that. And one of the issues that we have, if you have, is who can teach those? Who's available to teach those courses? So we also have to look at the fact who is graduating with their PhD in any given year that their dissertation is in AAC. Well, we have limited dissertations published every year related to AAC because of limited research funding. You know, we're all pulled into a limited pie of communication disorders that might be um, NIH or National Institutes of Health research money and or NIDLOR or NSF or, or other foundation money. And AAC is still an orphan <laughs> in terms of as, as research money. But look at how a snowball can be created by having specialty certification. More universities then want to be offering dedicated courses in AAC. So that means they want to be looking at for faculty that may have been doing their dissertation in AAC. And then that means, you know, maybe offering postgraduate courses in AAC and more than one course in AAC because people want to come back and get more advanced level training in AAC. Looking at our major conferences like Closing the Gap or ATIA and offering more advanced level AAC offerings at those conferences because one area for the transcript of continuing education is going to be advanced level courses. So I've already had an opportunity to talk with ATIA about how do we ensure that we're getting American Board of AAC specialty certification approving advanced level courses. That we can say that advanced level courses being offered at ASHA or at ATIA or at Closing the Gap match the practice competencies that we've identified that individuals have to say they've acquired to earn the certificate. So you can see that there's this beautiful snowballing effect uh, to elevate the delivery of clinical services around AAC. That's already has happened, I think, in swallowing and swallowing disorders. And that sort of gives you a nice track that we could follow to follow in those footsteps. Well, let me ask, going back to the that foundation that someone would be sort of a generalist, like you said, and then you have these specialty areas, mm-hmm. where does that line get drawn between, um, well, I'm a generalist and I can help you to an extent, but I really need a specialist to do this. What would holding the certificate mean versus not holding the certificate? What would you be able to do? And what would you not be able to do? That's an interesting way to pose that question, because if you look at, again, swallowing and swallowing disorders, you're working in a hospital, you're working at a a SNF, and you are going to be doing bedside evals and delivering uh, clinical swallowing services, right? And you don't necessarily have that certificate. However, there are individuals that really want to specialize in a given area, like fluency or child language disorders or autism, which is on its way. And then, of course, AAC, where I want to make my career pathway to really be concentrating in this particular uh, field of communication disorders or swallowing disorders. So I make that choice. But you have to follow what is the scope of practice and you know our co- and the code of ethics and our code of ethics says 
if you don't feel well enough trained to deliver a specific set of clinical services, you're supposed to acknowledge that and then refer on. So um, I think we all are aware that in the field of AAC, there are individuals with minimal training that really should be referring on (laughs) that haven't. And that's an issue that we could be addressing outside of specialty certification, but certainly once those unique clinical practices have been identified at an advanced level, they'll be listed out. So uh, somebody that is more of a generalist can say, well, can I really do this? Can I really do that? But right now there's no like, you have the knowledge and skills document, but there's no one saying, Well, you have to have all of these at your entry level. There's no entry level skill per se, but we will have advanced level skills, right? So you are, you are self-evaluating yourself. And still, if you decided that you did not want to go through the process of applying for specialty certification, but you wanted to improve your skill level, you would have a pathway to go, well, I know these are skills. I know I need to be taking more advanced level CE opportunities. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I think that it sounds like it's kind of a an additional layer and it gives people a clear direction as to where to go. Because you're right, there's nothing that really delineates the skills that need to you need to have in order to call yourself an AAC specialist. And I think this is especially relevant for assessments. Um, I can't tell you how many experiences I've had and clinicians in school districts are asked, being asked to complete AAC assessments and they're like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I'm not, I don't, I don't know, you know, where to even begin. Like they might've had interactions with one specific speech generating device or app and that's the basis that they have, right? They don't really have the training. Um, so I think, like I said, it's especially relevant with assessment. Yes, and um, I have gotten calls from, I won't say what states, (laughs) uh, but Medicaid reviewers that I remember one call in particular that the reviewer said, I have five SGD funding requests out in front of me, and they look like it was done on a template. In fact, some of the pronouns are incorrect. They're all recommending the same device. Are people just using a template to complete these reports? how do I know that a comprehensive evaluation was done? And I said, well, if it's a template and you're seeing that things look suspicious, then yes, templates are being used. So even the fact that the individual signing off on that wasn't close in making sure that the names were the same <laughs> or the the uh, the gender of the pronouns uh, was consistent. Sure. We see that we see that everywhere, right? And whether you're working on a something for that's for funding or an IEP or an evaluation you've done for a school, it's 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 something that you can it's easy to mess up because people are using the fine change feature of their word processor. But that becomes particularly important in that the trial process of three legitimate trials to understand what your procedures were in trialing and then what the the feature distinctions were between that. And I I think um, eye gaze is a very good example of that because people don't necessarily understand the difference between the eye gaze technology itself and then the language program or language software that there's that interaction between the two, but you have to be trialing both. 
and some people's eyes just don't calibrate well with one system over another. And uh, you have to know what those distinctions are to be fair. Absolutely. So Katya, here's my question about eye gaze when you bring that up as an example. I could see somebody who specializes into eye gaze, you know, that, that that's what I really know well, as opposed to, let's say, someone who works with uh, early intervention uh, autism, do you know what I mean? Or, and so, but AAC would cover all of that, do you know what I mean? And so are you specializing in AAC in that aspect? Or are you specializing on in the skill of eye gaze or specializing on the skill of early intervention or, do you know what I mean? How do you tease out those nuances? I'm curious. Um. It is a good question, and I'll be interested in after we have the practice competencies validation process go through, is what I'm looking at, the highest tier of advanced level skills. So think of of a neurologist or a neurosurgeon, all right? They might specialize in specific surgeries, but there are advanced knowledge and skills and surgical competencies, regardless if they're they are specializing in a pediatric uh, neurosurgery or an adult neurosurgery, right? Or a cardiologist, pediatric cardiology or adult cardiology. And then when we're reviewing the portfolio, somebody's portfolio examples might indicate that they're more pediatric versus adult, more adult neurogenic uh, versus you know, other types of adult communication disorders. Gotcha. Okay, I could say I could see layers to the certification. That there's the your base, and then there's an AAC certification, but then you specialize in in eye gaze, for instance. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the the process. So what what are people going to have to do in order to achieve this this level of certification? So there'll be a two stage process for earning specialty certification in AAC. That's similar to the swallowing and swallowing disorders. I'm going to backtrack a little. As the chair of the committee, I represent AAC board at ASHA at the CCSC meetings, where all of the chairs of the different specialties meet. I can say that all of the boards are looking at increasing the rigor that will be involved in earning specialty certification even if they're an existing board. Mm -hmm. So in our two-stage process, the first um, stage would be someone completes the application form. They have three letters of recommendation. They take their curriculum vita or their resume, and they highlight their AAC experience on it. And then they send us their transcript of their continuing education uh, experiences. And we will be accepting ASHA CEUs and IASET CEUs. And we will review that to see that they're advanced level in AAC. And then once that stage would be approved, they'd move on to stage two, where they are putting together a portfolio. And of course, we haven't identified what documents, but you could imagine maybe several uh, comprehensive evaluations or lesson plans, treatment protocols, maybe a published paper that you did or a presentation that you did at a conference like ATIA or ASHA. And that's reviewed. And the final thing you would, would take that national examination. 
Now, in conjunction with that application process, we are creating a mentorship program so that if you might fall down in that stage one application, that you can be picked up by a mentor and say, well, this is what you might want to do. We noticed that you could have beefed up your transcript or your letters of recommendation were maybe not strong enough. I'm just making that up at this point, right? Sure, sure. Um, and then once you pass that, maybe you're asking for a mentor to help you put together your portfolio. So we have a, um, a mentorship program that is, you know, tracking people along that pathway if they feel they need help. Now, I'm sure there's a lot of individuals that are very competent that will just breeze through that. And all of the board members have to have their own portfolio to demonstrate that we would have passed the whole process up to the point that we don't have the national exam available for us to take. Let, let me ask that last part. What does the exam, why is that the last part instead of just ending at the portfolio? Like the, what does that help in the entire process? Once you pass the exam, that means more than just doing the portfolio. Well, it's two different things. If you look at what's being evaluated in our portfolio is more open-ended questions uh, that, you know, asking about how you are implementing your practices. Mm -hmm. Whereas the examination is very objective in terms of being able to answer specific questions that have been identified around practice competencies. And that is validating what those practice competencies are. So the national exam is created by uh, we've identified a psychometrician who will be working with five different committees that start with a committee that is being identified right now uh, of volunteers that want to work on identifying those practice competencies that are unique to AAC. And those are validated by looking at the evidence base for those and what people have all agreed on would be recognized as essential. And then from there, you go on to committees that are working on writing the questions for the test <laughs> and validating those questions. A group that will take the test, look at what the cutoff score should be. So there's a variety of committees that overlap once those practice competencies um, are identified. So that's a two-year process just in that. And we don't expect to be starting that until the summer. So that's why the uh, projecting out about a three-year time span or a time frame before the certificate will be ready to be offered to someone. So once someone achieves the certification, is there going to be any type of maintenance that needs to happen to maintain yes. the certification? Yes, just like, you know, your CEs that you have to have so and demonstrate that transcript it will be the same that you send every three years in showing that you've maintained currency in practice. Gotcha. That makes sense. Do you have an anticipated cost? I'm sure that's going to be a question people ask is, well, how much is this going to cost me above and beyond what I'm already paying for my C's? And if I want to belong to other organizations outside of the, uh, the realm of AAC, the, the costs start to build up. So I'm sure right. this, this will help people that's budget. Why that, the snowball becomes so important that this be, uh, it's valued and people are seeing that as um, enhancing their career path, right? 
So I would anticipate that his cost would be somewhere around swallowing and swallowing disorders. And I don't want to put a price on that right now. <laughs> gotcha. But I, what I'm, I'm feeling is we are meeting as boards offering specialty certification and that the other boards, if they do not have a national exam, are now starting to plan for a national exam to increase the rigor that will all have around the same cost. Uh, to earn the specialty certificate and then to maintain it. Yeah, because that sounds if there's fair. a discrepancy, you know, th then that's not going to work. Either. Yeah, that sounds fair. And this is going to be a certification eligible just for speech language pathologists through ASHA? That's correct. Okay. So that's another thing that to be considering is other professional organizations could also offer. AAC certification in their domain or their skill area if they were so inclined. Now, swallowing has continued to be unique, but occupational therapists do work on swallowing. You know, interprofessional practice or IPP and or IPE, interprofessional education, is also an important part of ASHA's strategic plan right now. And I can't think of any area almost where IPE and IPP overlap more than an AAC because those teams are so critical. Absolutely. But that doesn't necessarily mean that every member of an AAC team, based on their profession, would need an AAC specialty certificate, right? It's that professional organization. Would AOTA want to have one? Well, I don't see that in their, their organization's mission. Okay. But maybe Resna, I could see them. Resna with the ATP, mm -hmm. um, but they've been hesitant to go down uh, given tracks also. Mm -hmm. So rehab engineering, I can see that uh, as being very unique. Uh, wheelchair, uh, you know, seating and mobility. But uh, again, that's their professional organization's decision if they want to do that. And certainly an ASHA member with their C's has, um, if we look at what's required just to have your C's, a master's degree, <laughs> a certain number of clinical hours, a clinical fellowship year, and passing a national exam. That's just to have your C's. So where what does the ATP fall in that? So rather way below what's an expectation for an SLP who's an ASHA member. Yeah, I couldn't there agree more. There wouldn't be a balance between, you know, Those necessarily two. the two. Right, right. And you, you specify that. I'm certified through ASHA or I'm certified through whatever the or right. other organization. And I, I'm an ASHA member. And I, I mean, I'm a RESNA member. I'm sorry. I'm a RESNA member and I love RESNA. <laughs> and when I was working on my PhD, I was in rehab science and technology. And I can't tell you, in RST at the University of Pittsburgh, it's rah, rah, RESNA. I mean, we're all... Yeah. <laughs> All Resna members. So I have, you know, nothing but uh, good things to say about that organization. Yeah, absolutely. But I am an SLP also. So yeah. well, that's exactly what I mean about how those start to build up. You know, I yeah. know I belong to the International Society for Technology and Education, but I'm also an ASHA member. And it starts to, <laughs> my wife looks at me all the time, like, are we writing another check to another organization? I'm like, yeah, yeah we yeah. are. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm doing brain computer interface research. And so I'm also a member of the Society of, you know, BCI, the BCI Society. So, yes. I saw Isaac just had a webinar. I missed it last night, but I saw that they just had a webinar on that. Yeah. 
So let, let me ask this. Uh, I, I think if I, if I understand this correctly, one of the ways you were formulating this in the first place was you asked SIG 12 members for, for feedback. Is that yes. accurate? Mm -hmm. And if you were yeah. looking for more feedback or people had questions, what would be the best way to, for people to give input or be part of the process or understand what's happening? All of that. How do people get involved? Well, for one, if you are a NASHA member, I encourage you to then become, and you are not a member of SIG 12, is to become a member of SIG 12, because we do updates in the SIG 12 community about um, AAC specialty certification. The other thing is to um, email me or email one of the other board members and say that you want to be involved or want updating. Until we have our website up and running, which will probably be another year, uh, you would be going to the, the board's website and finding information and then signing up for maybe our newsletter uh, that we would plan. But right now, SIG 12 is the best place to keep updated. That's not something you want to join right now. It's going to the ASHA website and doing that search on specialty certification and seeing what is posted there. And we can definitely link to that in our show notes so all of our listeners have instant access to, to that webpage that you're referring to. Um, and I, I would like to say that the Clinical AAC Research Conference, uh, which we hope to organize, is at Howard University on October 17th through 19th. And we are planning a panel on AAC specialty certification um, as part of that conference. So people um, that are interested in that more for face-to-face uh, -face dialogue about um, AAC specialty certification, um, the Clinical AAC Research Conference at Howard would be a good place. Uh, we're doing a short course on tele-AAC practice as part of that conference too. So, but that we will hold a panel there. Thank you so much. And I much. think we're going to unveil Kathy Beatty is involved in the mentor program, and Kathy's planning on presenting on the mentorship program, too, at that conference. Oh, that sounds great. That sounds great. Well, thank you so much. I mean, we, we set out at the beginning of this to get the facts, and now I feel like we have them. You know? <laughs> great. So. I'm glad. <laughs> Right. This this was really great. It was really eye opening and really helpful. And and really, um, what was one of my big takeaways? If I, if I might expound upon this and for a second, one of my big takeaways is just the idea that you're that it's meant to be more inclusionary. That that ASHA is trying to make sure that the rest of the world understands that this is part of a speech language pathologist scope of practice. Mm -hmm. That is a perception I had not thought of before. I just mm -hmm. always assumed people thought it was, but I can see how now uh, from the historical perspective of swallow how before I just grew up with swallowing being part of speech, you know, but of course it wasn't always part of speech. And so I could see how AAC would be that same way. Right. That was really eye-opening for me. So thank you. Well, thank you, Chris and Rachel, for inviting me. I really appreciate this opportunity to spread the word. <laughs> Absolutely. So thank you so much, Katya, for coming on. Um, to our dear listeners, if you have not joined our Facebook group, please search Talking With Tech. You can join our Facebook group. Um, and of course, subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Thank you again so much, Katya, for coming and joining us. So for Talking With Tech, my name is Rachel Mado. Join with Chris Bouquet and Katya Hill. We will talk to you guys next week.
You're listening to the Exceptional Podcast Network.